6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 43. We are in Isaiah 40, right? And this in many respects, of course, as I think I have uh, highlighted in the past, is a turning point for us, so to speak, because Isaiah changes his style dramatically at chapter 40. The style change is so conspicuous that that gives rise to all these bizarre conjectures, that there are really two Isaiahs and all of that. Isaiah can be divided into three sections. The first 35 chapters, which have a certain style. Then the the four-chapter interlude, which is a little historical insert. And then uh, chapter 40 to the end. But many scholars, you know, I think they create these things to pass their Ph.D. thesis or something, but they create this idea that, well, gee, there are really two Isaiahs. And that, of course, is nonsense. And I mentioned this before, but I just, at the possibility we have some new people, let me put to bed this nonsense. There's nonsense of this kind spread around the books of Moses, who really wrote them. Moses did. How do I know that? Because Jesus told me that. He see quotes from each book and ascribes it to Moses. So the documentary hypothesis, as it's sometimes called, is a bunch of nonsense. There's the same kind of uh, ideas that float around about Isaiah, that Isaiah is really two, you know, Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2. That's utter rubbish, utter rubbish. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, and in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, there are quotes where the gospel writers ascribe Isaiah 53 in one case, and Isaiah 61 in the other case, to the prophet Isaiah. But even more dramatic, the one thing you might want to remember, if anyone tries to sell you this two Isaiah thing, or three or some other silly idea, uh, let me spare you hours of boring textual research. And that is simply to remember John 12. And by way of review, we'll just pop into John 12 one more time. In John chapter 12... An interesting thing occurs in John chapter 12, verse 37, 38. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so on. And that's calling your attention to a very familiar phrase. You've all heard this. Isaiah chapter 53 opens up that way. Verse 40 It also quotes Isaiah. It says, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart, and be converted, that he should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Speaking, of course, of the famous passage, Isaiah chapter 6, where he sees the throne of God. But the interesting verse you want to remember is verse 39, which connects the quote from verse 38 from Isaiah 53 with a quote from verse 40 from Isaiah 6. And it says in verse 39, Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again. In other words, we have here documentation that the same Isaiah 
wrote chapter 53 that wrote chapter 6. In other words, there's one Isaiah. There's not two Isaiahs. So if you believe the Bible, if you believe the New Testament, then you have no problem with how many Isaiahs there were. And if you haven't received the New Testament as God's truth, you've got bigger problems than the authorship of Isaiah, so we'll just keep moving on. Okay? So we're moving into Isaiah 40, and you're going to find the concepts, the vocabulary, the perspective dramatically oriented in the New Testament, what we would call New Testament terms. In fact, I've often thought it'd be a fun thing to a class is to give them a bunch of quotes and have them guess which book they came from. And you could take uh, all kinds of quotes from Isaiah and you would be ready to affirm that this came from Revelation or New Testament or whatever. And it's interesting that uh, they're heavily here. Okay, so let's just move in. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now we could go from here to a whole study on comforters, huh? right? We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, the Father is spoken of as the comforter. And of course, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as a comforter frequently. John 14 is full of that and so on. At least four times in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as a comforter. Also, the Son, though, is also spoken of as the comforter in several places. But one of the most interesting places is Isaiah again, chapter 61, verse 2. It's Jesus quotes that passage when he uh, inaugurates his ministry. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 61. So comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That sounds pretty good, but let's wait a minute. Why should she get double for all her sins? I thought God is fair. Right? She got double for all her sins? That's interesting, isn't it? Stop and think about it. I'll leave you with that for next week. No? No, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Two concepts that are suggested here. One is that Israel is spoken of as God's firstborn, and the firstborn is entitled to the double portion, both good and bad. So that's one, that's one approach. It also turns out, though, there seems to be some documentation that the phrase in the Hebrew was a commercial term as paid in full. doesn't mean it's double like twice as much. It just is it's doubled up in the sense that it's a figure of speech, you see. So that's, a, that's another possibility. But we're going to run into that phrase again and again, so that's worth some thought. But then verse 3 is classic. It's familiar to you because of Matthew chapter 3, which we'll look at in a minute. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And here's that familiar word. By now we've gotten very accustomed to the idea that Isaiah seems to frequently dwell on this concept of the highway, the highway for a God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And as we read these verses, it's hard for us not to hear in our ear the strains of Handel's classic treatment of the Messiah, because most of the lyrics are taken, of course, from uh, Isaiah. So some of this has a, has a familiar ring to it for that reason. But we might pop over to Matthew chapter 3. It starts out, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and so forth. So Matthew, as he so frequently does, highlights for us, Old Testament passages that are fulfilled in, in the narrative that as, as he unfolds it. And because of Matthew's allusion, we recognize in Isaiah 40, verse 3, that phrase. One reason I mention this isn't just to link it up for you, but also to highlight the fact I'm always impressed with these people that emphasize the need to interpret a verse in context. And don't misunderstand me. That's essential when you're talking Christian doctrine. Because taking things out of context, of course, can lead to all kinds of weird ideas on the one hand. On the other hand, we also see, and Matthew is perhaps our greatest instructor here, is that often there is a verse that carries prophetic and mystical significance far beyond any context that you and I would perceive. My favorite example, of course, is where Matthew quotes from Hosea, Out of Egypt I have called my son when Jesus and, and Joseph and Mary returned from Egypt to Nazareth, right? Well, when you read that passage in Hosea, there's no way that you can <laughs> draw that inference without some what I'll call rabbinical insight. So it's interesting. So that's for that reason, as we read the Old Testament, we should keep our scanner up and be watching for possible, don't build doctrine on it, but keep an eye on uh, possible hints uh, that are tucked away in the text. And this is an example here. Okay, we're down to verse 6. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it, and surely the people are grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A number of places in the Old Testament, it alludes to the idea that flesh is grass in the sense that it's transitory. It's here today, blossoms, blooms, whatever, and then fades away. And yet there's another reason it may be here, this phrase being here, and that is to be a perspective of the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, we find grass being burned up and so forth. The introduction of this symbolism uh, can be very material to in your study of the book of Revelation. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit engineers every detail. 66 books by 40 authors in which every detail is supernaturally engineered. It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, you have the locusts and they have a king. Chapter 9, these strange creatures come out under a king. In the book of Proverbs, it says the locusts have no king. Why did the Holy Spirit tuck that away in the book of Proverbs? If for no other reason... Then when you get to Revelation 9, you realize these aren't locusts like normal locusts. These are demonic creatures under a leader. But the point is, you see, those things all tie together. One of the things, as you study the book of Revelation carefully, it'll take you into every book of the Bible to unravel it. There's over 500 direct quotes in the book of Revelation from the Old Testament. So if it seems strange, it's only because we haven't done our homework in the Old Testament. Anyway, this is one of those places where the idea that flesh is grass sounds a little strange at first until you expose yourself more deeply into the Old Testament idiom. But moving on, verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. 
There again, it reminds me of one of the most melodic parts of Handel's Messiah. If you ever get a chance uh, to hear the full performance, it takes three hours, yes, but it's incredible. And after a study of Isaiah, it'll give you a whole new respect for it. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And of course, from here we can also springboard into a whole study. What do you mean good tidings? What do we mean by good tidings? Well, we mean the gospel. Terrific. What's the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15 defines the gospel. Also, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 through 5, defines the gospel. How that Christ died for our sins, was buried and was resurrected on the third day, according to the scriptures. So that's the good tidings. And one of the things we need to recognize is the tidings aren't good unless you appreciate the jeopardy they deliver us from. One of the mistakes we all make, I think, is that we emphasize grace. We emphasize the abundant life in Christ. And don't misunderstand me. But the real news is to recognize the jeopardy he's delivered us from. We don't like to look at that very much. It's not a pleasant topic. And yet, that is really what it's all about. It's called the law. All men and women be held accountable before God. And it's interesting that the good news is, is that our bill is paid in advance. That's the good news. But see, you can't really understand the good news unless you realize the bill that needs to be paid. Follow me? Now, I won't get in a big heavy trip tonight, but I just want to leave that thought with you that the, the joy in Christ in large measure is because he has taken care of a debt that you cannot deny. You can pretend it ain't there, but... It has to be reconciled. And the good news is that Jesus has taken care of the whole thing. So that's the good news. So say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. That's what several times the Bible calls his strange work. What work are we talking about? Not the creation or other things. This work, when he comes, you see, his reward is with him and his work is before him, that is ahead of him. What is his work? It's the day of the Lord. Right? The day of Jehovah. The time of Jacob's trouble. These are all labels for the same period of time. Or the great tribulation. It's interesting that his reward is before that. I'll leave that for what pre-trib implications it might carry to you. Verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. That's such a familiar phrase. Let's pause for a minute and consider it. It's interesting that the shepherdship of Jesus Christ is elaborated on and emphasized in all four Gospels. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Familiar refrains to all of us in this fellowship, huh? Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and measured out the heaven with the span, and measured the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Question. Interesting question. It interests me because of its emphasis 
on quantitative measures. We frequently encounter phrases like this in the Psalms or in the poetical portions of the Scripture. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and measured out heaven with the span, and measured the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. You notice there the emphasis of Isaiah is on the quantitative, not the qualitative, the quantitative measures here. Isaiah is calling our attention to his precision quantitatively. Let me give you an example of what I'm driving at. You may or may not have gotten into the details, but you've heard of things like the, you know, the ozone layer. You've heard of things like the greenhouse effect. And there's a number of these ecological concerns. When you hear those things, turn the coin over. Think about it the other way around. If a tenth of one percent change in the ozone layer somehow will bring cosmic doom, how did it get so precisely tuned in the first place? You see, the very anxiety of the ecologists is actually an articulate demonstration of the evidence of design. can't happen randomly. In fact, non-believing scientists will discuss a phenomenon they call the anthropic principle. And what they mean by that is, as they start to build mathematical models of the Earth or the solar system or the universe, and they start trying to build a structure and put the right parameters in and so forth, they discover something very strange. They discover that every parameter they deal with has to be in a very narrow range to describe the universe as we know it, you see. And there are actually almost a hundred of these parameters that have been identified. You change the mass of an electron, you change the mass of the neutron, you change the distance between the earth to the sun, you change the mass of the earth, you change the thickness of the crust, you change the gravity, any of those things. Life can't exist. If the earth's a little closer to the sun, it's too hot. It's a little further away, it's too cold. The earth's crust's a little too thick or too thin. You know, there's oxygen transfers they discover. It turns out the more they study the universe, whether it's on the cosmic level or the solar system level or down to the subatomic level, any parameter they play with causes life to be impossible. And even those that don't necessarily accept the concept of creation acknowledge the reality that it would seem that every parameter they encounter has been tuned to the benefit of man. And they call that the anthropic principle. And, of course, they argue about what its significance is. That's a different issue. But the point is, it's interesting that no matter what parameter they play with, and this, this, this goes beyond this time we have here, but if you, those of you that are technically inclined, I encourage you to get the tapes on our Genesis study or whatever because we get into some of this. And a number of the scientific writers have, have dealt with this very eloquently. But the point is, there is a concept called the anthropic principle, which essentially says that every parameter you measure is in delicate, delicate balance. Some of these parameters, if you change one part in ten to the fifth, life's impossible. The delicateness of the tuning of the universe is so fragile that that is an eloquent rebuttal to the concept that it evolved by randomness. 
I'm always fascinated that, especially when we study Baal or Moloch or the ancient idols that, that the ancient tribes worshipped, it fascinates me because most of us today don't view ourselves as worshipping idols. And yet our world at large has invented the most insulting idol of all. That this incredibly complex, this magnificent creation that we experience, they attribute to nothingness, to randomness. God, your rival, isn't some other God we worship. It's nothing. See, it's the most insulting God we could invent. Interesting. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? It's interesting if you change the number of stars in the universe, life's impossible. That's a more complicated model, but I'm throwing that out just to stimulate your imagination. There are a number of writers. Dr. Hugh Ross has written a book called The Fingerprint of God. There's much of what he advocates I don't happen to agree with, but that's not the point. He's a very, very bright astronomer, and he highlights some things from a creationist point of view that's breathtaking. It's worth your consideration. And measured out the heaven with a span. Who's measured out the heaven? NASA has in the last few years. We've measured the universe, and there's a couple of interesting discoveries. One discovery is that it confirms Einstein's general theory of relativity to five decimal places, but the other discovery is that it's finite. It's not infinite. And that has shattering implications to the cosmologists. And Hawking and Pemrose and the great writers' brilliant minds are wrestling with that one because they recognize the significance of it. Because if it's finite, it had a beginning. If it had a beginning, it had a beginner, a designer. And that's kind of interesting. Or measured the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. I have to share one interesting thing to you that there's a friend of mine by the name of Dr. Gerald L. Schroeder. He wrote a book called Genesis and the Big Bang. It's one of the places I steal a lot of my material. <laughs> you won't find it in a Christian bookstore because he's an Orthodox Jew. I found it in B. Dalton, happened to stumble into it, picked it up some time ago. Looked him up when I was in Jerusalem because he's a nuclear physicist and he's witnessed six atomic blasts. And he's an interesting guy. Even though he's not a Christian, he's an Orthodox Jew. And he taught me a lot about the ancient sages. And so we became real good friends and, and it's kind of fun. But in his last letter to me, he shared something kind of interesting. We talk about six days. Did the, God create the world in six days, right? And yet uh, we measure astro astronomically. We know the universe is, you know, roughly 13 billion years old, and by some other accounting. And, uh, of course, in the Genesis study, we did point out that by using Einstein's theory of general re relativity, time dilates in accordance with mass and acceleration. And that means that when you talk time, whether it's six days on the Earth or somewhere else, you have to deal with gravity and time. Is, time is neither linear nor absolute. Jerry went and did the equations recently. Took the mass of the universe, which we now know, and took the mass of the Earth. He put an observer on the surface of the earth and plugged that into Einstein's general theory. He took the mass of the universe and imagined yourself on the perimeter of the universe, put that in Einstein's theory of relativity. And the 13 billion years at the perimeter of the universe, by Einstein's general theory, equates to guess how long on the earth? Six days. Isn't that kind of fun? The foolishness of God puts to naught the wisdom of men. Interesting. We'll move right on. Who hath directed the Spirit of Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? God is getting a little pushy here, you know. Who taught the Holy Spirit? I give up. By the way, if you're going to study the Holy Spirit, you don't start in Acts chapter 2, you start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. 
And the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters. The creation is ascribed. It's actually ascribed to all three. John ascribes to the Son. Many places we ascribe to the Father. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it ascribes it to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Again, an uh, argument for the Trinity. Well, who hath directed the Spirit? Who asked the Spirit to do that? Who is being his counselor taught him? With whom he t- took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him the path of justice or taught him knowledge or showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket. <laughs> you thought that was a common expression, didn't you? Did you know that is in Isaiah? <laughs> drop in the bucket, right? The nations are like a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the coasts as a very little thing. Sounds like a Midwesterner talking about Californians, doesn't it? <laughs> and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn or is its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. And when you watch the hearings on television, it sure underlines that, doesn't it? Boy. Nations. We have an advantage. You see, there was a day that you could take emotional pride in much of what we stood for. And that's not misplaced. Don't misunderstand me. But today, as we look and we survey the tragic travesty of our government, we have an advantage because it allows us to see it in real perspective. We watch the hypocrisy of our foreign policy. We give tens of billions of dollars to our Arab neighbors without interfering with their domestic policies. But we won't guarantee loans for Israel unless they declare part of their country off-limits to Jews. Notice the hypocrisy. And I won't mention senators by name. I don't need to. Verse 18, To whom then will we liken God, or what likeness will we compare unto him? See, that's probably what one way to talk about God. He's totally incomparable. Any dimension. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.